and we read, and we're going to read all the way to verse 20. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for um, this moment to engage your word, for this opportunity to, to explore uh, what you have said, what you are saying, and what you continue to say. We just pray, Father God, that you will speak to each and every one of us, that you will touch us at our place of need, meet us at our place of need, so that we can be your instruments here to proclaim your word, your gospel, your ministry throughout all the world. We thank you, Father God, because you have, uh, you have designated a time such as this to talk about the issue of reconciliation and just pray that you will speak through me, that it will not be of my own mentality, of my own mind, but it will be everything from your throne, that it will impact lives and generations to come. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. I wanted to give a quick shout out to my wife for the suit. Um, yeah, you know. <laughs> she, she's been begging me to wear this, and um, I've been getting a lot of compliments today. You know, she says that every time we go out, she's getting tired of me looking like a houseboy, so uh, she upgraded me. <laughs> Um, on January 27th of this year, President Trump signed an executive order, 13769, is known as Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States, or it has infamously been called the Muslim Ban, which is written to disallow individuals from seven pre-selected predominantly uh, Muslim-majority countries from entering into the United States based on the notion that these countries pose a threat to our nation's security. At the top of this list is the nation of Syria in which he um, stated that indefinitely would not allow any refugees from the country of Syria to enter into the United States. In an interview with CBN, which is the Christian Broadcasting Network, the president said that preference would be given to Syrian Christian refugees of whom, according to him, were treated very badly by the previous administration. This may have been said to possibly appease the evangelical Christian base of his supporters. Um, this decision sparked an outcry both nationally and internationally, including fellow Republicans, Many have challenged the constitutionality of this order, and as you have witnessed over the over a past couple of weeks when this order was written, there has been a lot of chaos, a lot of disagreements over the signing of this order. They said that it doesn't reflect 
the values in which America stands for. Because America, as we know, has been a nation that is full of immigrants, and so we've always been inviting to people from other nations, specifically those who are fleeing um, their country uh, due to political upheaval, conflicts, whatever they may be. So people felt that this order kind of was an affront, an affront to the image of America. But I had to take a step back because I felt that there has been a bit of hypocrisy that has been displayed by those who disagree with the president's order. Simply, he has, signed, he has put into signature what we have already done in our hearts to people who are coming from different countries, from different nations. I know, that, I know neighborhoods, especially in the city of Clarkston, with a huge refugee population in which Somalians and Sudanese are basically excluded from this American show of love uh, towards, uh, towards foreigners. Just the other day, I met a man by the name of Dev, who was a Hindu from India, who grew up in America. He said that growing up was rough after the 9-11 attacks because he looked like an Arab Muslim. I can only imagine that those who mistreated him would be the ones who also profess Christianity as their religion. Yusuf, an 18-year-old Somalian who, was, who attends Clarkston High School, who's actually graduating this year, he said he hates being in America because he's alone and he finds it tough to make friends. So Muslim band aside, how do we treat the foreigners among us? Do we go out of our way to build relationships with people who do not look like us, smell like us, or act like us? Are we demonstrating the attitude of Christ to the nations that are here? Do we see them as God sees them? One of our, our prayer points this morning, which was to my amazement, was that God would strengthen our connection here at Walkfan. Um, to his word and to his presence. So we must understand that above and beyond all things that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and as the church we are called to participate as ministers of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth a personally painful letter. The Corinthian church from its inception was problematic for the Apostle Paul, it was a church that was established in a very hedonistic environment. If you can imagine having church in the midst of all types of immorality, all types of, 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 of immoral fetishes that were taking place, like for instance, going to a place like Las Vegas, where you have gambling, where you have prostitution, where you have all types of decadence that is taking place. Could you imagine holding a church meeting in that particular location. That was Corinth. Corinth was a city in which anything goes. Whatever happened in Corinth stays in Corinth, which would have been the model. The city had moral issues and the problems in the church of Corinth was a reflection of those issues. Here's a list of things that took place in the church. I'm gonna name six of them and see if you can see, if you can catch a trend of commonality between all six that I named. Number one, sexual immorality. You had a brother that was sleeping with his stepmother, in the, and who was sleeping with his stepmother, and the leaders of the church lacked the moral authority to correct the problem. Number two, 
they were divided and extremely cliquish. Sectarianism took place in which some leaders preferred, uh, you know, some people preferred uh, certain leaders to be, uh, to pretty much speak in the church. Some would say, well, we want Paul. Others would say, well, we want Apollos. Others would say, well, we want Jesus. Um, others would have another leader that they wanted to pretty much hold court. So there was a big divide among their preference for leaders. Number three, they were disorganized, valuing certain gifts above others. Speaking in tongues versus prophecy was, for instance, one of them. So if you had one particular gift um, versus another particular gift, there was a pretty much a big debate about which gifts were seen or valued as important. So if you were an administrator, if you had a gift for administration, you weren't as appreciated as someone who may have had a gift to, I guess, preach the word. So these were challenges that was present in the city of Corinth, um, in the church of Corinth. Number four, they were divided by class. The rich people within the church were treated better than the poor people, especially during the times of communion where everyone was, was, where everyone was supposed to gather together and, have, uh, and to share and break bread based on the common fact that we were in Christ. Well, what they would do is that some, so the rich people would have a bigger, bountiful um, plate, so to say. Like, let's just say it was Thanksgiving. Well, the rich people would have a bigger turkey. But the poor people, sometimes they wouldn't even have a chance to eat. And this was very problematic because this was during the time of communion, a time in which we're to get together and have a meal based on the fact that we are united in Christ. Number five, members were, engage, member were engaging with temple prostitutes. And number six, disputes over eating foods that were given to idols. These were the issues that Paul addressed in his previous Corinthian letter, which we know as first, uh, which we know as first Corinthians. So now in this letter, a period of possibly 10 years have gone and the church is now questioning the authority and the, and the apostleship of Paul. They question, how can a legitimate apostle face so many types of hardship and claim that he is sent by God? So Paul takes out this time to address many of these issues, but emphasize the need for unity. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, in which our president would say 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 17 begins with this word, therefore. When therefore is used, as we heard many, many times before, whenever you have the word therefore shows up, it's kind of like a bridge point. It's kind of like a, a, a point of connection between what is going to be said in the future pointing back to what has been said in the past. For instance, I got into an accident, therefore I'm going to be late getting to work, right? Or my dog ate my homework, therefore I can't turn in my assignment. Uh, that resonated with a lot of people. <laughs> so, 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, is a result or connected to verse 16 in which Paul argues, therefore, from now on, we recognize one another, one, no, we, I'm sorry, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known we, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Well, why did he say that? Because now I just read verse 16, which started with another therefore. So then the question is why? Why? Because in verse 15 of the same chapter, Paul states that the Messiah died for all and was raised for our sakes. We are a new creation and should view each other as new creations if we are in Christ. The biggest hindrance to our unity, our oneness, is our identity. When the basis of our identity is not rooted in the resurrection of Christ, then we see ourselves according to our wealth or lack thereof, according to our social status or not being rated high on society's hierarchical positions. We see ourselves according to our racial backgrounds, or I'm black, or he's white, or she's Mexican, and I'm, and I'm uh, Chinese. We see ourselves according to those things rather than being in Christ. Some cases, we, are, we see ourselves according to our tribal differences instead of being in Christ. However, when the basis of our fellowship is anything but being in Christ, then we have a spiritual crisis on our hands. When the basis of our fellowship in the church is tribal, then we commit the sin of failing to honor the communion. Our commonality is Christ and not our tribes and not our nationalities. So if anybody knows me, Lee, I am pro-black. I like to buy black, shop black, tend to hang around a lot of black people. I like talking about black issues, politically like speaking about black things. However, if my pro-blackness supersedes my responsibility to engage with my brothers and sisters of a different race or it hinders my ability to reach across the racial spectrum, then my identity in Christ requires for me to abandon my prejudices and walk in the newness of Christ. Because my blackness does not define my Christianity. My Christianity defines my blackness. Paul states, and let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 to 28, and you can hold your place in 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 to 28. And this is what Paul says. He says, for all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, or should I say there, is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave or free man, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This does not mean that we don't have differences. This is not a denial of our differences. Paul did say that you are in Christ, there's, no, there's neither male or female. That doesn't mean that you are no longer a man or no longer a woman. At least I hope so. <laughs> this simply means that our differences 
are designed by God as means to attract those who are outside of the body and bring diversity in our worship as the body, but never to divide us as a body. The Corinthian church was a highly divided church. And Paul contends that if we are to be one and to, be, and to see ourselves as one, then we should look no further than the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, all, or in the death of Christ, all have died, but in the resurrection, all have been raised up together. We're all one in Christ. That is the emphasis. So I don't see someone as being white or being black or being Hispanic or being Chinese. When we're in Christ, we are one. I appreciate those diversities because it makes being in Christ that much more better. But it's not what separates me from my brother or separates me from my sister. The very root the very root of the problems with the Corinthians was the unwillingness to see themselves as one. It is the same problem that we have even in our churches here in America. Our vision in this house is to build strong families that will transform the nations by exercising kingdom dominion everywhere. Well, how will we do this if our tribal and, nationali our tribal and nationality are more important than our unity in Christ? How will we exercise kingdom dominion everywhere if we only want to go to the places that are familiar to us? If I'm Nigerian and I want to exercise kingdom dominion everywhere, I want to go to places like Thailand because I'm not in Thailand, right? If I'm Chinese and I want to exercise kingdom dominion everywhere, I want to go to places like Cuba, why? Because I'm not in Cuba. Because the call of God is to make his name great among all the nations. So it requires for us to leave our places of, uh, of familiarity, our places of comfort, and go across and extend the hands of Christ to the nations that, are not familiar, that we're not familiar, to, familiar with. A strong family is a functional family. Show me a dysfunctional family and I will show you one that it, at the very core has a lot of division. We can appreciate our diversities without dissenting into division. Disunity is antichrist and it detracts from the authentic message of the gospel as well as misrepresenting the image of God. The very nature of God is a unity of three distinct persons who are one. We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, but yet they function as one God. Well, that is the same image that he gives to us to have, that we are one like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Amen? Yeshua prays to the Father, and I say Yeshua a lot, it's just a Hebraic name for Jesus. But Yeshua prays to the Father, saying in John chapter 17, verse 21 to 22, says that, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may, may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are 
one. Cat that? So there's this oneness in God, this oneness in the image of God, and God wants to basically translate that oneness from his image to now being our image as the body of Christ, that we are one, that there is a unity, there's no division among us. We are diverse, but we are one. We have different functions, but we are one. We have different jobs, but we are one. We have different gifts, but we are one. We have different names, but we are one. Amen? Amen. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. <laughs> I <laughs> I like saying 2 Corinthians. I really do love our president. There's nothing he can do that'll stop me from loving him. Yeah. <laughs> yep. He tries, he tries, but I love him. <laughs> so verse 18 and verse 19, and it reads, Now, all these things are from God. What are these things? Of course, if you've been with us from a couple of weeks, we've been talking about the promises. So among the promises are these things. Now, all these things are from God that we've heard about in the past is the blessings, the prosperity, elevation, newness in Christ, newness of life, anything that is associated with being in Christ, that's these things that this scripture, that this verse emphasizes. Now, all these things are from God who reconciles us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The word reconciliation, it comes from the Greek word katalaso. And what it means is an adjustment of a difference that requires an exchange of bringing one in favor with another. Reconciliation requires for there to be an exchange, in order, an exchange that must take place in order for there to be an alignment between two parties. In the Greek social and political spheres, in the Roman Greco culture, the term denoted a change in relations between two individuals or groups of people or nations, while also in the religious context, it also means it was also used as a way of, of speaking to the relationships between the gods and the, and the humans. Biblical, rec biblical reconciliation must be established upon truth, motivated by love and executed by grace. It must be established upon truth, motivated, motivated by love and executed by grace. It impacts our relationship with God, our family, our neighbors, as well as foreigners. In the Old Testament, the word reconciliation is the Hebrew word or is based upon the Hebrew word kafar which is which by far which is mostly used to use the word uh, it mostly used for the word atonement when the word atonement is break, broken down it means a condition without tension let's go to leviticus chapter 16 which details the instruction concerning the day of atonement uh, day of atonement leviticus chapter 16 
And this way, it can kind of give you an appreciation for what it means in the eyes of God to reconcile with man. This is what the priesthood would have to go through in order for there to be reconciliation between him and Israel. Leviticus chapter 16. Verse, hmm. Let's start from verse, I want to say verse two, but let's start from verse three. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is, to put on the, he is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are the sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his, own, for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goats whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. So this, was, this is partly the system in which an atonement was basically being made. It took slaughtering of two, uh, uh, of you had the bull that was slaughtered for the high priest and his family to ensure that he was clean before God, but then also that there's two male, two male goats. One male goat was used as a scapegoat. The other male goat was slaughtered as to make an atonement for Israel. So this was the process that, that the high priest would do once a year in order to ensure that there was a, uh, a release, or a, should I say, and ease of tension between God and, and Israel. So when Christ died on the cross for us, he removed the tension between us and God permanently. In the Old Testament, they had to do it once a year. When Christ did it, he did it permanently. Amen? You can call Peter and tell them we don't have to slaughter animals anymore in order to remove that tension between us and God. Sin brings separation and tension between God and man. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. It says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. 
but your iniquities has separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear for your hands. Verse three, your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. So sin brings separation between God and man. But the gospel offers the vision of reconciliation between God and man as depicted through the prophet Zechariah in which the God in which God and the nations are joined together without tension. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 2 verse 10 and 11. Zechariah Chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And it just occurred to me, I forgot to tell everybody, that mother-in-law made it all the way from Nigeria. Yeah. <laughs> she got her head down. I guess she doesn't like to be embarrassed like that. <laughs> but she's going to stay with us for some time, so... Please love on her as much as you can. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And it reads, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Did you see that image? The very this very passage pictures the Lord as the one who sends the Lord as the uh, and sorry the uh, this very passage pictures the Lord as the one who does the sending, and also pictures the Lord as the one who is being sent. So we have the sender, the Lord, or Yahweh to make it easier, and we have the sendee, Yahweh, or the Lord, the sendee as one who is being sent. The sent Yahweh is the one through whom all the nations are united to God. Galatians chapter four, verse four, you can just write it down, you don't have to go there. It says that, but when the fullness of time comes, God sent, or the fullness of time came rather, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. First John chapter four, verse 14 says, we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. The reason why Yeshua, Jesus, emphasized so many times that people should believe that God sent him or that if they deny him, then that they deny the one who sent them is because he's trying to convey that he is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Jesus is the sent Yahweh. The apostle Paul is echoing Zechariah when he mentions that God was in Christ reconciling the world or the nations to himself. Therefore, the Messiah restores the relationship between God and humanity. And when we say that we are in Christ, then we are called to continue this walk as his ambassadors. We are the ambassadors of Christ to the nations, not just globally, but locally. 
So when we run across brother from China or that brother from India, that sister from Cuba, or that sister from Botswana, we are, when we engage them, we are engaging them as, as ambassadors. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is one who is sent basically as a delegate from, from one nation to another nation to represent the interests of the nation that they're sent from, right? So John Huntsman, I think he's going to be called or he's already called the ambassador to Russia. He, when he goes to Russia on behalf of the United States, what he is simply doing is representing the interests of the United States to Russia. He's going as a spokesperson for, Donald, for President Trump to Russia. Whatever John Huntsman says to Russia is what John, is what uh, President Trump is saying to Russia. Amen? Amen? So that when we are ambassadors for Christ and we're engaging these different nations, we are simply delegates of Christ representing the interests of the kingdom to whatever nation that we come in contact with. Whatever we say is what Christ has said. Whatever Christ says is what we say. Right? Because we're simply ambassadors. So when we do not show love to nations, when we do not show love to the people that we are around, guess what image they have in mind of Christ? I mean, we see it all the time. I've, I talk to many people who say, I will never go to church. Why won't you go to church? Because church people rub me the wrong way. What are they really saying? They're thinking in their mind that Christ has rubbed them the wrong way. Because we are an extension of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ, so we have to be careful how we interact with people of a different nation because we represent Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 states, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, and as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is our message. Anytime I'm meeting somebody, my heart, I'm praying to them. When I'm shaking their hands, when I'm hugging them, my message is be reconciled to God. When I'm meeting dancers that go to Magic City, I am saying be reconciled to God. When I run into an abusive husband who beats his wife, I am saying be reconciled to God. When I meet a contentious wife who drives her husband crazy, I am saying be reconciled to God. When I'm talking to the youth, I am saying be reconciled to God. When and I am praying for Donald Trump. <laughs> Be reconciled to God. <laughs> and be counted among the nations that are joining themselves to God according to Zechariah chapter 2 verse 10. Reconciliation does not just affect our relationship with God, but it also impacts our relationship with each other. Biblical reconciliation is a, vertical, is a vertical act that has horizontal implications, right? So what God has done for me, I am doing to others. That's basically the sign of the cross. You got the up and down relationship and you have the cross relationship. So people who are reconciled to God love God. 
Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. If you are reconciled to God, this is what you display. You display a love for God. It says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? When they asked Jesus, what, are the, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't just give them one, he gave them two. He says, the first one is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He was simply just repeating the law. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God caused all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called according to his purpose display a love for God. They go hand in hand. You cannot say you love God and don't walk according to his purpose. Amen? Amen. You can't say that you walk according to his purpose and you don't love God. Number two, people who are reconciled to God love other believers. First John chapter four, verse 19 to 21. First John chapter four, verse 19 to 21 says, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. John chapter 13, verse 34. John chapter 13, verse 34. And it says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. When you love other believers, there should be no lack in the house, uh, uh, no lack in the house among fellow believers. In other words, if one person in the house is struggling, maybe with depression, maybe with anger, or whatever the issue may be, well, if we are a body and we're called to love God, and we're called to love each other, we should be making ourselves readily available to that person who is struggling with depression, who may be thinking about suicide, who may be thinking that, oh, nobody in this world loves me. We should be the ones there for them. Why? Because we are reconciled to God, therefore we should be reconciled to one another. No lack in the house. Quick story, I remember when we were in Houston, and I remember when my wife, when we had, our, when we had Israel, 
And um, I was in school at that time, so we were on Medicaid, and I remember that they gave my wife like this, um, like this uh, breast pump, and it was like a hand breast pump that you had to physically work it out. I mean, my wife had muscles, like, <laughs> like, yeah. And I remember how the Washingtons had stepped in and actually purchased an electronic breast pump for my wife so she was able to use. We went from being, having a moment of distress to actually having a moment, uh, to having times of, release, uh, of relief because of what our brothers and sisters in Christ had done for us. So when we say that we love one another, we should be willing to provide for one another in times of lack, whatever the issues they're going through, we are to be together because we are one. Amen? Amen. Number three, people who are reconciled to God love the outsiders. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33, reads, When a stranger resides with you in the land, you shall not do to him, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, or the Lord your God. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3, and I'll just go ahead and read it. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. If you want a biblical verse that should back up the reason why you should get involved in issues of social justice, here's the verse. Do justice and righteousness. The church should be, um, the church should be at the forefront of a lot of some of these issues that are taking place in this nation. We, we should be at the forefront. We should be present. Nobody should say, well, where is the church when police brutality is taking place? Nobody should say, where is the church when, when, when women are not being paid the same amount as men? Nobody should say, where is the church when we're dealing with issues of, 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 of violence in the land? Amen? Amen? The church should be ever present. They should say, where is the church? Why? Because people who are reconciled to God loves the foreigners, loves the outsiders. You know, they should say that the church has stepped up when it comes to people being mistreated because they came from a different country. Even for the youth in our, and the youth that are going to school, I remember I had a, a friend named Wega who was uh, from Kenya, and Wega was mistreated badly. They didn't like the way she smelled. They didn't like the clothes that she wore. They treated her badly. I was in sixth and seventh grade, sixth grade at the time. And I can still recall to this day how it must have felt for Wega to come to the United States hoping that she would find some place of solace, some place of uh, 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 refuge, and the people in school were treating her as if she was a dog, as if she didn't count, as if her life didn't matter. The church should step up in times like this. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
The only reason why President Trump would feel emboldened to speak negatively of Muslim immigrants and refugees is because he has taken this cue from the American church. However, it's on us. It's not, I don't blame Trump for anything, honestly. You know, I, I blame us as the church. What we put out there is what they run on. Amen? So, if we are to arise and do what God has called us to do, one, love God, two, love each other, three, love those who are foreigners, we can radically demonstrate the image of God to the nations. We are called to reconcile, we are called to be part of the, uh, uh, of the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling the, the, the world to God through Christ, amen? And that is actually my time. Amen. So, amen. Amen. So let's 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 go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for keeping us. We pray that this word would impact us. We pray that we will go out there and call the world to be reconciled to you. We pray, Father God, that the that the foreigners who are here among us in our church. Um, on the streets that they will know that there is a God who reigns. Amen. That they will know that there is a God who loves them because we as Amen. believers, we act in love. So give us the heart to love. Empower us to love your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you for Amen.